The thing that I think Twitter is still missing is it needs to adopt Web3 and crypto. And if you're going to ask me, like, how would you make Twitter better? I would say number one thing is let people own their profiles. So like if as long, if people can own their digital content, right, and then they could take them and plug them in other places, then Twitter would be better because it would have a whole bunch of competing Twitters out there that would keep Twitter in check and prevent them from making bad decisions. Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains and the go-to place for everybody to learn about the latest innovations in Web3, NFTs, and the decentralized web. Join us each week to hear from experts, entrepreneurs, and the early stage investors that are building the future on the blockchain. Not only will this podcast help you understand why these emerging technologies are so important, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the metaverse. GM, GM, welcome to another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. My name is Josh Gordon. I'm your host, and I'm back with Matthew Gould, CEO of Unstoppable Domains. Matt, how you doing? Good, man. Glad to be here. Thanks for joining. We've got a spicy episode today. We're going to talk about free speech. We're going to talk about disinformation. And most importantly, we're talking about Elon Musk. Now, everyone knows by now that he bought Twitter, but he had a tweet back on June 26, 2020, and he said, he who controls the memes controls the universe. And maybe Elon controls the universe now because he certainly controls the memes. It's been pretty crazy. What are your thoughts on this right now? Yeah, I mean, Elon's definitely putting his money where his mouth is, going 40 billion large on Twitter. You know, it's big news. There's a reason why a lot of people are talking about it because it is a big deal. You know, we saw Jeff Bezos pick up with the Washington Post maybe five years ago, and people are all up in arms about that. Well, Twitter is you know 40 times bigger than the Washington Post, if not 400 times bigger in terms of social impact. And so Elon, who's now the richest man on the planet, also has the world's most important media platform for news. And at least according to Jack Dorsey, like he's always seen Twitter as kind of like a news thing or for, for spreading news and also gossip. So it's big. I mean, what's next? Elon for president? I wouldn't be surprised. He has all the means necessary to go for it. And either that or, you know, King of Mars, one or the other. But we'll see. I'm excited to talk about it because Elon actually pulled out a lot of takes on Twitter and what he thinks he can make it better while he's there. And, you know, fingers crossed. Let's hope he pulls it off because I think it is important what he's trying to do. Yeah. Let's let's talk through some of those takes that he shared on Twitter around what he wants to do at Twitter. Now, the first one being bots are bad. He talked about the open source algorithm and really making Twitter the the black box behind Twitter more open and public. He's even talked about adding an edit button. But I've got some tweets pulled up here I'll, I'll share quickly. His first tweet said, if our Twitter bid succeeds, we will defeat the spam bots or die trying and authenticate all real humans. So I say authenticate all real humans there, and that, that he tweeted that on April 21st. That must be ringing a lot of bells in your head, right? For sure. And when I saw that, I was actually much more hopeful about Elon's bid here because 
we certainly think that one of the biggest problems we have online right now is all these bots. And it's not just for scammers. It also reduces the quality of the information that we have online. So, and we'll get into that a little bit later, but these things are all related. And another one that he said that I thought was quite good, he was talking about, he did a poll online and he was asking, should we open source our algorithms at Twitter? And I think the poll got like 80% plus people saying, yes, we definitely need to open source the algorithm. So like right off the bat, Elon just went after two of what I think are the biggest problems on the Twitter platform. One is the bots. And then uh, the other is uh, giving people more information on how decisions are made at such an important uh, social media platform. So I'm pretty Pretty excited about that. He also came out with another tweet that, that was a little bit spicier. It's like, if social media platform policies are good, if the most extreme 10% on the left and the right are equally unhappy, I think that that's a good way to make at least a lot of extreme people not like you. I think it was good to see him come out and say that too, because he's going to have a hell of a time moderating. And we can get into all the reasons why, but you know, the internet has just become... It's huge. And it's really hard to wrap your head around, even for someone as genius as Elon Elon Musk. And I think he's going to have some trouble. Totally. And, and it's interesting to see him recognize the fact that he knows going into this, he's not making everybody happy in this situation. There's not a, a product decision that he can do that's going to just check the box for everybody. And that's just the nature of kind of politics. And I guess being such a public figure in his poll that you shared, one thing I thought was interesting about that was there was over a million votes. He got a million, 100,000 plus votes on that. And sure, you know, the people following him probably are leaning a certain way in terms of their views on technology and, and business. But it's so interesting how he can have such a wide reach and get such instant feedback. And thinking about how people at Twitter today, or even in politics, when they're making decisions, there is orders of magnitude, like smaller reach that they have when trying to make these decisions. And the surveys they're doing. So the the direct user feedback he's going to get, and I think the real-time innovation we're going to be seeing from him, it's going to be pretty remarkable. And I think one other thing to point out here, the thing that everyone's talking about, is a result of the fact that we do have these monopolies. And so maybe one other thing we can touch on as we kind of talk through this is like, it's really bad that we only have one Twitter where everyone's aggregating on the community square. Uh, and we need to disaggregate social media to encourage competition. And, you know, like some people are very upset about Elon Musk buying Twitter. Some people are very excited. I am upset that we don't have more than one place to go. And, you know, if we had like 10 or 20 places to go instead of just one, then any one person wouldn't have such an outsized impact on the information that everyone receives. And I think that is super dangerous. So we'll see. We'll get through it. Even if we did have 10 plus, 20 plus places to go to have those kind of town square forums, do you lose the ability to get consensus? Because now your discussions are really fragmented. I don't think so. And especially if we have ways for people to move their information between platforms, which is one of the things that everyone in crypto is trying to do right now. And if you look at all Web3 products, one of the core features built into Web3 products is that you get to take your data with you as you move between these different applications. So I think it will be more like we'll be competing the Twitters of the universe so that you'll have a lot more options that are going to deliver what it is that you want from that service. So I think that the services will get a lot better because there's a lot of stuff on Twitter that I don't like looking at that I'm on there right now. And yeah, I can block everything, but that takes a lot of effort. And it would be better if there were just more ways to experience the social networks and you know the, the Twitterverse you know, per se without having to have that horrible user experience. So 
and we still don't have a we still don't have a perfect situation for everyone so i'm i'm more optimistic about it once we can make things portable yeah no good explanation let's talk about some fake news statistics fake news is not a new news story by any means i mean after what we've gone through the last couple of years i think it's just pretty widely known but it, it's almost one of those things that you hear about so often that you start to glaze over it a little bit but i just want to share some statistics and then dive in to some of your thoughts on information sharing today so in 2020 only 29 percent of u.s adults said they trust most news media and 52 percent of americans said they regularly encounter fake news online so, you know, if every other person basically is saying that when they're online, they're seeing fake stuff every day, that's not a good user experience. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's awful to, to just be honest. And what's happening is, is we have an attack that's happening right now in the world against public discourse on both sides of the spectrum. And, and what's happening is on one side of the spectrum, we're getting flooded with a lot of disinformation, which makes it really hard to have legitimate thoughtful conversations with other people and then on the other side of the spectrum because we have so much of this this overload of information we're trying to find more ways to weed out and moderate right and then that that ends up making people feel like they're being censored so on both sides of the spectrum we end up unhappy we're eroding the the core part of having a place to have you know, thoughtful discourse as a community because it's being attacked from both sides you know and i think it all goes back to the cost of information that's really, really dropped since we had the internet. And if you look at it like publishing 300 years ago, you know, you had to have a printing press or whatever, like super expensive, or like you had to like handwrite your whole book and that's super expensive. And then we had the printing press and that dropped the cost and then news press. And then when we had the internet, people used to say that they thought that we had pushed the cost of information down to zero. And I would like to say that I actually think we've pushed the cost of news even lower than that. Like it's gone negative. And what I mean by that is you can see that in news that is verifiably false. So people who have a narrative to push that is definitely untrue because it's so cheap to publish that information in a billion different places online and get that out there, uh, they're actually causing negative harm to everyone else by spreading what they, and I'm not talking about an opinion. I'm talking about things that's just not true, just, you know, hundred percent. They made it up because they're, you know, trying to sell snake oil or whatever it is that they're trying to do. And this has actually pushed the cost of information even below zero to being negative. And what we think a lot about is, you know, how can we bring that cost back up so that it's not free for people to spam? And this spam problem is actually on any information network. So just the, the internet is experiencing it in news, right? But we also have spam transaction problems on the, on the blockchain, right? Just like spam transactions in general are a problem. And if you don't affix some sort of marginal cost to that message that you're sending out there, you're going to get spam. And so I basically feel like our entire uh, political discourse right now is under spam attack constantly and has been for at least the last five years. And we got to find some way to raise that cost of news back up above zero. So when you talk about getting that cost above zero, is it actually charging to post? Like, is that what you're saying? Like you need that negative financial incentive or are there other actions you can take that are non-financial, but still potentially negative to the user that you can impose or to the, to the poster of the fake news? So as someone who's played around with their fair share of bots and has written my fair share of bots online and have done all sorts of fun things with bots in my younger days, I could just say that the way that you can increase the cost of distributing information online, the way that everyone does it right now, 
Did you spin up a huge bot farm and, you know, you all upvote each other's stuff or you, you know, re remake posts in hundreds of different places and you just repost the same information from a whole bunch of viewpoints and it looks like you're building momentum. So if you look at networks that effectively attack this problem, they make it harder for you to create bots. And the way that they make it harder for you to create bots is maybe they want you to be verified on Twitter, or for instance, maybe you require people to do go through a capture check or something else to, you know, maybe they have to have a subscription to post, or maybe they have to have, you know, Reddit has a whole thing and they still have a bot problem around, you know, accounts must be this many months old or whatever to post on this new forum. So there's all sorts of things that platforms are doing to combat spam already. So it would be even worse if they weren't doing it. But I think we need to do even more. And this is why I thought it was very interesting for Elon to really zone in on that problem of bots off the off the bat. And he was basically saying, we want to verify everyone on Twitter. And so just immediately what he was saying is, in order to make a post, you have to have some sort of reputation data attached to it. So when we think about it at Unstoppable, and when I think about it, I talk about what reputation data can we make a person attach to their profile that would increase the cost of them posting. Because if you want to post and you have to prove to post in a certain form that yes, you are a real human. Maybe if you're posting in New York, you have to prove that you live in New York and you have to like also prove that maybe you're, you know, a nurse in order to post on the nursing forum or whatever. Like you have to go through all these different things. All of a sudden now, instead of being essentially free for people to post, maybe it's like 10 bucks, right? And that's going to, because that's how much it would cost to buy it, you know, on the dark web for someone to, to make a post there for you. And that's so much more expensive than the price that they're paying today. So I actually think that associating reputation data will, will help with this, bring the cost of posting online above zero again, which would, which would help a lot with the spam problem. Yeah. You know, I mean, even, even verified Twitter accounts we're seeing have been purchased, it looks like from, you know, these these bot and these scammers, and it's happening a lot around NFT collections. We saw it with Moonbirds just a couple weeks ago, and, and last week, all these fake Moonbirds accounts that were verified. They had bought a verified account, changed the display name so the handle was still the same, because I think on Twitter, when you change your actual like at handle, that's when the verification can be uh, suspended or removed. And people were falling for scams, getting fished. So I think that adding that financial component so that it actually costs money to get verified or post does probably limit a large percentage. It doesn't limit everything, but it's a start. And you talked about identity authenticators. I know it's Unstoppable has our humanity check and but what happens when there are hundreds of different identity authenticators? Who do we who do we trust or do you kind of see it as do you see it as just a check mark that you are authenticated and it may not matter who you get that authentication from? Yeah. So this is another thing that we talk about here is like being able to bring your full self with you on the internet. And so I think that means that you could have authentications or verifications from dozens, if not hundreds of different places that you interact with. And that is going to increase the value of your reputation that you have online. So, you know, as a, for instance, right now, every different website that you log into, <laughs> you have a you know, balkanized separate identity on that platform. But if you had a single identity across all those different platforms, then any verifications that you perform on one platform, you could take with you to another. So, you know, if you make a lot of posts on your school platform, cause you're there and you're attending university of Michigan or whatever, if you then go make another post over here on uh, GitHub, they can verify that you, oh, you're actually a student at this, at this place. And then when you're on, and then when you move, move from GitHub and you go 
to post on Twitter. People on Twitter can see, oh, this person is also this person on GitHub and also this person at University of Michigan. And, and assuming that you want to bring all those pieces together, that makes identity even more expensive. So when you talk about people faking a Twitter account online, right now they just have to fake one thing, right? Like that check mark, and then they just buy that for a hundred bucks or whatever. But if you make these profiles significantly more complex, it's going to be as hard to fake being that person across 50 websites that that cost is going to go up even more significantly. So I think that the more ways that we can allow people to bring their full personality with them online, that means we're going to be able to have more more human conversations in these in these networks with less bots because uh, bots are just going to have a real hard time pretending to be human if they if there's more ways to verify that someone is who they say they are. Yeah, it's interesting. Like two thoughts I'm having right now is there's really just never been a time where we've had to prove we're human on the internet. Like we're used to the captcha and the checking the box or picking the three tiles that have a motorcycle in them. But that's kind of usually at checkouts or maybe at some logins. But now in your everyday interaction on the web, you really have to ask, is the person I'm reading from a human? And getting that authentication is so important. It's kind of giving me also like this analogy as you were describing of like the blockchain or like the transitive property. It's just if you break humanness or you break that reputation on any of the platforms that your identity is associated with, which you can only get once you have a composable identity, that all of a sudden, if you break it in one spot, it, the chain is broken in all the others too. You know, if you if you prove you're a bot over here, then you it shows that on on the right. Or if you if you're a human on the left, we also can believe you're a human on the right. You know, and thinking about that from like a little bit of a blockchain perspective is interesting, just because every single block is authenticated, and if it breaks once, that's where you know you've you've got a bad actor. And it certainly improves the immune system of you know political discourse that you have online because like you can see if someone is real or not across these networks and one of the other problems we have is one person could pretend to be a thousand people and i think that gives people a really messed up perception online so i was talking to someone the other day and i was excited about you know, eliminating the bots on twitter and then they pushed back and they said well i know some people who will say crazy stuff on twitter even if there aren't bots, right? So you're still gonna have people saying like really crazy stuff on Twitter, even without the bots. And I was like, well, yeah, that may be true, but they won't get that fake validation. <laughs> so like if I've like posted a crazy post and then I have like 500 Twitter bots upload it. So I feel like I'm saying something and a lot of other people support me. It gives me a false perception of what the world believes. And, and like, you're seeing a huge division happening right now all over the planet, like everything from France's most recent election, you know, where Le Pen and Macron or whatever, and, you know, Hungary and all these other different places where people really feel like they are right and they feel like other people are wrong. And I think that they have this echo chamber that's happening online. And that echo chamber is being, you know, these bots are like a cancer that are just making that echo chamber even worse because they're coming in here and they're really just pushing a viewpoint and pushing that negative externality, that negative cost of this bad information onto everybody else. So I think it's really bad from that side, one person pretending to be many. And then the other part is people don't bring them their full selves online. And so you miss a lot of those people. So I'm on Twitter and your Twitter could be a war zone sometimes. And you'll have some crazy conversations on public Twitter. And then in my private DMs, the conversation will be a completely different tone. And it just shows that sometimes the forum is also important. And I think a lot of people get stuck 
and this this is the problem with having these you know one platform for Twitter. I, I guarantee you there are other ways to have discourse online that are not Twitter. Uh, it's just very hard to build one because the, you have this huge monopoly lock-in with this platform. There's no easy way to move around it. Like there was a really interesting thing on Hacker News, and it was a new social platform, and you could only write one post a week, and it was kind of like Bumble. Right. So for dating apps, there's like Tinder and then there's Bumble, which is, and, and it's kind of like that, but for social media. So you only got one post per week and all of a sudden it really slowed down the discourse, but that social network is going to have a real hard time getting adoption because they're going up against Facebook and Twitter who already have these huge network effects and this lock-in. And you're seeing a lot of other creative things too. So Aave and their Lens protocol is trying to build a social network for crypto people, which I think is pretty cool because you can like mint posts and monetize them and do some interesting things there. But again, they're just going up against these huge locked-in monopoly networks with these private algorithms. And there's really just no way to know uh, you know, how, how anything is determined in these platforms and it's extremely hard to compete. So I'm hoping we can build the tools in crypto to make this more open, uh, but it is an uphill, it is an uphill struggle. Yeah, no, totally. You talk about the open algorithms or the closed algorithms, the open on lens, closed on, you know, web two social with Twitter. Let's talk about open source algorithms a little bit more since that was another thing that Elon mentioned. And how does this impact censorship? And does, does it help solve it? Does it just does it just change it? I know that we've had a lot of conversations of, about this as we've been prepping for this episode, and it's a it's a tough conversation to think through. Yeah, well, I mean, the algorithm is where the censorship is going to happen. So I thought it was really neat as well for Elon to say, let's open source this algorithm. I don't think that's going to solve the problem. So I'm just going to go out there and, and say it out loud. But I think it's really interesting to open source it because what I imagine now is they're going to open source the algorithm and then everyone's just going to be mad at it, right? Like that's like the instantaneous reaction is going to be I'm ticked because the algorithm is not prioritizing me. Let me just jump in right here and just to clarify what you said for everyone listening, you said the, the algorithm is where the censorship will happen. And, and that's, I believe that you're saying that because the algorithm right now, we don't have any insight to it's it's essentially a black box that's making decisions on who gets banned or who, who gets temporarily blocked. And it's that kind of censorship that people are really uncomfortable with right now because it's it's a single company, which is now owned by a single person who's making those decisions, right? Yes. And I think one of the biggest problems is there's no way to leave the platform and go, you know, and plug it into another platform because if we think about what's going to happen on this algorithm with Twitter, so let's say Elon Musk is successful. Let's make some predictions. So he, he's successful. He buys Twitter. He gets rid of all the bots. Everyone's very happy because the bots are gone. And then he open sources the algorithms for what they're doing on showing up on news feeds. People are still going to be mad. Like, like what outcome can we predict? Like, People are still going to want to censor people and, and like people are still going to be mad. Like that's what's going to happen. And we're going to be tasked with the question of like, well, who decides what the open source algorithm does on Twitter? You know, do we have a vote? Does Elon Musk take a poll? And then everyone votes in the poll. It's like, do we want to ban this person? And then everyone just votes on Elon Musk polls. Like that, how that's going to work. Is, is it going to be time bound? Are you only going to be kicked off for like six months? Elon made some, some comments about that. And this goes back to the problem of the social media networks that are, closed platforms. And people in crypto have been talking about this forever, which is you need to have a composable nature at the base layer for it to be safe. And if you look back in history at Twitter, they used to be open with their APIs or a lot more open, and then they closed it. 
And so now Elon's going to buy the company, take it private again. And the reason why they closed it off, by the way, was to make money, just so everyone's clear. So, so like when Elon buys Twitter and he takes it private and they open source the algorithm again, I guarantee you it's not going to be good for shareholders short and medium term. Like this is the reason why they closed it last time is because they wanted to make money by monetizing want, and that. And that's feed. because they wanted to control the data or be able to sell the data versus just giving this open API for developers everywhere and at companies to start doing their own analytics on, right? Correct. They needed to place ads. And the thing is, is, if Twitter has all the data and the algorithm, they can do a better job selling ads than anybody else. And what they had was third-party developers coming in, understanding the algorithm, and then suggesting content directly to brands so that like there was no way for Twitter to monetize. So that the way that the social media platform actually monetized was by keeping this data private. So the fact that Elon's talking about open sourcing the algorithm is pretty crazy, in my opinion. And like I think it's not going to be good for making money at Twitter, short or medium term. But it could be a rebirth of Twitter. And, and the thing that I think Twitter is still missing is it needs to adopt Web3 and crypto. And if you're going to ask me, like, how would you make Twitter better? I would say number one thing is let people own their profiles. So like if, as long, if people can own their digital content, right, and then they could take them and plug them in other places, then Twitter would be better because it would have a whole bunch of competing Twitters out there that would keep Twitter in check and prevent them from making bad decisions. And so, you know, if we had like a crypto version of Twitter, I was joking about this, but you could fork it, right? And then you could have your, you know, code is law Twitter. You know, you could have your Twitter classic where free speech is absolute, you know, like we have Ethereum classic and you could fork it and people would be able to move their profiles over there and experience that. I don't know if Elon's going to go that radical, but I do like the, I will say that the first couple of things that he's mentioned to take a look at, which is tackling the bots, I mean, we just need to do that. It's bad for humanity to have those things on there, just publishing all sorts of crazy stuff. And then trying to open source this algorithm. I think that's a good idea so people can be aware of at least of what's happening. These are good first starts and I will uh, leave it open. Uh, Elon has been very successful, so maybe he'll fix Twitter. So I don't think he's going to do it without crypto though. Yeah. And I, you know, this is probably a good transition to talking more about crypto solutions to identity and also and, and reputation and you know touch on a little bit of how we're thinking about that kind of stuff in unstoppable domains so i think it'd be pretty cool if you could share how you first started working on crypto reviews and how that led you to like working on naming systems and really like your position on identity today yeah when i first got started in crypto I was actually taking working on Bitcoin because everyone was at the time. That was the only thing out, really. And uh, we were looking at ways to verify people's reviews that they had online. So, for instance, you know, Yelp was a big thing back in 2013. And you wanted to have some way to prove that someone had actually shopped at that store if they're going to leave a review about it because you didn't want someone to have a fake review. And so we worked on a project for that. And then maybe six months later, there was another project and it was like Reddit for Bitcoin people. And one of the things that they were trying to do is build a reputation system on there. So it's like, I was like deja vu, right? Working on how to build a reputation system for this one. And then it just turned out like every single crypto app, Bitcoin app back then that you would work on, people were like, oh, it'd be great if we had some sort of like little reputation system we could plug in. And just as a builder, you realize like, oh, if you're making the same thing you know, multiple times in a row on all these different places, it would be great if we could abstract that out and then and then have a, you know, a generalized solution for reputation across apps. So I went around and started hunting for generalized solution for reputation across apps. And I realized, and I think a lot of other people have realized this too, and they need we need to say it louder, which is if you have some some form of digital identity, 
where you can take you with you as you go along different apps. Then you can build a reputation across all the apps and the user can maintain it and they can own it and they can benefit from it. Um, and then the apps will have a consistent ID system for their users that will help fight these things around spam and misinformation and people pretending to be a thousand people when they're only one person. So that's how I kind of ended up coming on cross app reputation. And of course we think NFT domains are a natural solution for this. And we actually view NFT domains as a really great way of assigning people a static, consistent digital identity across apps. Do you think that everyone is really going to have an NFT domain eventually or some kind of identity that they own? And if, if everybody is owning an identity, is the only version of that NFT domains? So I certainly believe that. And there's obviously lots of different ways that we could end up with a digital reputation system online. I just happen to think that naming systems are really well built to handle this. And the reason why I believe that is if you look historically, we all use domain names right now. And those are reputation systems, mostly for businesses, like small businesses. And NFT domains are really that same type of system for being able to look somebody up. You know, like you, you look up a business online right now, you type in their web address. Well, in the future, you'll be able to look a person up by typing in their NFT domain and find information about them. And NFT domains are really designed for consumers, whereas regular domains are designed for businesses. And there's a huge amount of technology changes between domains, you know, that were DNS was 1996, I think, and then NFT domains, which is 2022. And all of that is around, you know, the private public key pairs, the public nature of blockchains, being able to verify data as third parties, accessing and permissioning that data. All of that comes through users having control of their uh, NFT domain in their wallet with a crypto, you know, it's a native crypto asset. So you can sign things and verify things without having to have to interact with like a centralized service, like ICANN's DNS system. So there's huge improvements here, but yeah, I think so. And I think naming systems are a really interesting and good spot to build reputation systems online. And I think that they have all the advantages to win and we'll see that play out over the next uh, decade. One question we have, I have about reputation is you've seen that black mirror episode where you can, people are just walking around, like rating people that they interact with on their day-to-day -day life. That's not how you see this playing out, right? It's reputation systems are going to be tracked differently than just anyone being able to downvote you, right? Correct. So it's hard to predict what are going to be the second and third order effects. But I think the way that people are going to build reputation systems to start with is going to be the personal information and data that they want to store and that they want to share. So you're really going to build it up as a personal utility for yourself. And then as you build it up as a personal utility for yourself, you're going to be able to permission information access from other applications in order to build better user experiences. So that's a lot of words. But what I'm, what I'm trying to say is, you're going to build up a digital ID because it's going to be great for you to have one place where you store your data and your information. And and then you can portably use that thing across applications like an SSO. So you don't have to keep track of 5,000 different passwords. And then when you log into all these apps, they're going to be asking you for data. And they say, hey, do you mind sharing this piece of data with me or this, or this piece of data or this piece of data? And you'll choose to share that data with them because they'll be able to make a better app. As an example, if you're shopping online, maybe you share your clothing sizes, right? So you can save time and they'll only show you what you need to see. And if we take it one step further, like how these systems are going to evolve, assuming that privacy technology continues to improve, you'll even be able to share this data with other apps that you interact with, and you'll have guarantees around them deleting that information after they interact with you, which, is, which would be super useful for users. So 
it will be possible for you to personally keep information about other people you interact with. If you're like, oh yeah, I interact with Josh, I didn't like him. And you could write that down on your own personal data store. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that information will be shared so everyone else can see your rating of Josh. I'm sure there will be apps that do that. I mean, Black Mirror is definitely very thoughtful about their views of the future. Some of that stuff is not super great, but I think overall it'll mostly be an improvement for your own personal utility. And then hopefully it will help us with some of these social problems that we have. So there's a lot of angry people online right now that I think are upset because there's a lot of information that's being posted that is really low quality um, and could be solved with, you know, trying to make sure that, that it's really people that you're talking to and that people are bringing their full the full picture of themselves and not just a small part of when you're interacting with them online. Yeah. I, I really like a couple of things you said there. One being, you know, you pointed out that the second and third order effects of identity and reputation systems can be difficult to really project and figure out how that's going to come because, and, and you're thinking more on that first order. What can, how can people build their personal like reputation repository and figuring out how that affects how other people affect that is kind of the secondary down the road thing to to consider. You talked about how people are angry that there's these bots impersonating people and spreading disinformation. And then there's a whole that's probably like maybe maybe that's first order effect. The, the sec the secondary thing is people are upset that other people are just sharing views that are either against theirs or hurtful or potential hate speech, you know, the, the line, this goes on that are potentially racist and, and how you, how we figure those things out is a very fine line to walk, right? But you're thinking about first, we have to, we have to solve for bots, we have to solve for misinformation spread by literal non humans. And then we probably figure out how to solve misinformation by humans as the follow on action. Mm. Yeah. And, and if we're talking about you know, censorship in particular, it's all going to go back to these these algorithms. And I think that one of the things we can do to also help address that is by having you know, more portability between these different applications so these apps can compete to do a better job of uh, providing a user experience. Because right now, the user experience on these social apps, as I was mentioning, is you know, very tuned to a certain like they're they're going for like the profit maximizing user experience for you know when they have a monopoly online and if there's a lot more competition between these apps maybe we can build more spaces where people can get more value you know deeper value i find that a lot of the social networks at least in my opinion are very surface oriented and then you know it's not until i go into dms that i have a different like more more nuanced or deeper conversation with people and there's a lot that hasn't been explored there on how we can make social networks better. So we'll see. And then on the second order effects, something I do think is worth mentioning is it's very obvious to me that uh, solving for privacy online is going to be a big component of ensuring that second order effects are not super negative. So you could imagine a future where if you have a digital identity online and then you like log into a search engine or whatever, because you want to have a better search results. And well, if you're in China and you search for the wrong thing, right? Tiananmen Square or something like that, like Taiwan as a country, uh, then they would know exactly who you were. And that would be absolutely terrifying. Um, and so you need to make sure that like the data exchange between users and apps can be done in a secure manner so that you can share your user preferences without necessarily having those user preferences tied back to exactly who you are. Um, and that's there's a lot of research that's happening there. Most of that is being done in the zero knowledge proof community inside the crypto space. The, you know, at Unstoppable Domains, we're, we're focused on first order effects because we're just trying to get digital identities out to as many people as possible. And then I just know in the back of my head that uh, ensuring that we work and support 
privacy tools as we build out these networks is going to be important for preventing really bad negative second order effects. So there's upsides and downsides to having, uh, you know, identity on the internet. I think the upsides outweigh the downsides, especially given how bad the discourse has gotten online. I mean, it's the number one topic right now. Everyone's talking about Elon buying Twitter. There's a reason because it's a huge problem for, for a lot of people and it's currently an unsolved problem. And you know what, uh, whatever reviews are, are on Elon, I think we should all hope that he does a great job because it would be huge if he could figure out some ways to make this a lot better for everybody. So, you know, I'm all behind him and I hope he does great on this. And I feel sorry for him because I think that no matter what he does, a lot of people are going to be angry at him over the next couple of years. Yeah. You know, I, it's kind of funny how many texts I got from people I just wasn't expecting. Even my mom sending me links about Elon buying Twitter. And it just surprised me a little bit at how it really struck a chord with so many people and people, and they were saying, you know, what do you think? And I'd like your feedback on this. One of my reasons why I am pro Elon buying Twitter is I just think he's been a, a phenomenal builder and entrepreneur. And it's been, and I don't think he's motivated. This move is motivated by the financial upside. I think that if he wanted to make money, there was a lot more things he could have done with his 40 plus billion dollars that instead of buying Twitter, which has been largely not a great return on two investors since they've IPO'd, right? And he's doing this because it's actually important to him. And I see Tesla focuses on clean energy promotion across the world. SpaceX is the interplanetary uh, mission so that humans can exist on outside of just Earth. And the acquisition of Twitter is really focused on free speech and being and being a supporter of democracy. And, and that's his that's his mission. So I feel like this was a little I mean, I, I feel like this was a little bit of an altruistic move for him. But that's those are some of my reasons. I mean, do you think there's any validity in that? Or do you just really support it because you think he's a phenomenal builder and can actually execute on the vision that you want to see, like social media and open platforms go? Well, I think that social media is basically, you know, going right in at the bottom <laughs> of of like of like my rating of social media and social platforms is extremely low on a scale of like one to ten like it's a one for every single one of these so i would say i don't think you can do much worse if you look at what social platforms have done so i think the risk is pretty low to the downside that and and i know some people disagree with me but really it's bad I don't think that Twitter was figuring out how to make it better. If anything, they were just trying to like hold the wall for like a little while, but it was going to break eventually. So I think the downside was pretty de-risked. I was actually about 50-50 on it when the news first broke. I wasn't exactly sure which way I liked, but I really like where he's going with this attacking the bots. I think it's, everyone can agree, it's terrible. Um, and then verifying the humans, that was also, I thought, like just a super, it's really hard to do that. I mean, you were talking about people who are buying fake accounts already. So if they actually tackle, those are two, just hard tech problems that he's going right after. And I think that's great because that those are concrete things they can do to make it better. Uh, I also think that Twitter's incentives are totally screwed. Like we said that uh, they made their algorithm private and dark on purpose so they could make more money, right? And like that is the opposite of what we want for uh, a better social media platform. And I think he's right. Like the only way to do that is to make it not a public company so that you could, you know, have it have some mission that's maybe more important than just making next quarter's numbers. So I think he had, I think it had to have some sort of outcome like this. I think he's 
kind of hard. I think it's going to be a hard job for him. I don't think he's going to be successful. And I know it's a terrible thing to bet against Elon Musk, but I'm just going to say it like it's going to be, I just, I think it's, he's basically bit off an impossible thing to fix, but uh, I still think we should try to support him in his efforts to uh, clean up social media. And it's not just Twitter, right? It's everything, Facebook, Instagram, all these things are really bad. So if one person can make social media network that, you know, instead of being a one, it's a five that would hopefully and you know, improve all these other social media platforms too. So I'm pretty hopeful for it. I will say one other thing is I don't think he's going to solve it unless he allows people to own their profiles. So I think that like he's Elon's going to have to move to, more towards crypto. We already know he's a huge fan of Doge, and uh, but I think he's like he's going to figure out that the best way to fix the incentive problems on Twitter is to give people ownership. And, and allow people to own their stuff online. And so I hope that he comes to that conclusion. He's a smart guy, so we'll see. Well, let's get our let's get our team talking to Twitter. So it sounds like we got some connections to make and some partnerships to build. And I appreciate your explanation there, Matt. And one thing I'll end on here is, you know, Jack Dorsey also said some pretty similar things to you. A, he's in support of Elon, Elon's purchase. And he said that, and this is from one of his tweets he had the other day. Twitter as a company has always been my sole issue and my biggest regret. It has been owned by Wall Street and the ad model. Taking it back from Wall Street is the correct first step. So moving away from that ad model, open sourcing the algorithm, it sounds like he's in support of that too. So interesting times ahead, especially for everybody listening who's probably on crypto and NFT Twitter themselves. We're going to be right in the thick of it. So I appreciate Matt. This was a good conversation. Yeah, yeah, super bullish for crypto too. I don't see how crypto doesn't win here. Just FYI, as a side note. So selfishly, very excited to see Elon get in here and hopefully he posts some more Dogecoin memes and uh, we get more crypto acceptance on social media networks. I think that'd be a huge benefit for everyone. I don't own any Doge, unfortunately. So I'm kind of hoping he tweets about a couple other coins or maybe he buys a <laughs> maybe he buys a board ape or something. Yeah, I can see it happening. Elon with a board ape, let's make it happen. It would break the internet. There's actually a lot of people who have been buying like bored apes with the the spacesuit. It's kind of a trait that you don't see very much because it's a kind of rare trait, the apes with a spacesuit on them. But people are just waiting for him to buy one. Uh, and that, would, that would break Twitter for sure. Well, thank you to everybody listening to this conversation. Me and Matt were very excited to dive into identity and what the future of decentralized social could look like. If you're listening right now on YouTube, please please drop a like and subscribe to the channel. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, a follow really goes a long way. So with that, I'll see you next week on another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. Peace out. Bye, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please leave us a review, subscribe, and share this with your friends. And remember, this conversation doesn't have to end here. Tweet us your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. I look forward to hearing from you, and thank you so much for listening.